0: I'm Jonathan Nida. I'm a staff minister for administration and children's ministry. And uh, it's a long title, but you memorize it after a little while. Um, And so I I get paid to hang out with with this church. And uh, I'll just be honest with you, I wanted to take this time to to thank you. It's a great place to be. Even this past week, uh, I know that my family has been ministered to. Uh, by the people in this church, and it's a great place to be, and I'm, I'm grateful to be able to be here with you. Today we're going to talk about Galatians 3, 6 through 9, and it is a time-honored tradition that preachers find very moving hymns and poems to illustrate their point, and I found one today. I'm going to read it to you. Uh, forgive me if I get a little emotional, because you're in these things all week, and you're studying. And it, and it becomes real to you. So uh, just just plow through with me, and, and then we'll get started with the sermon. <clears throat> Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them, and so are you. But with these Greeks, what should we do? Okay, it was corny, and I'm the children's minister, and they like corny, and that's kind of my wheelhouse. So, so forgive me for that. But that really is what we're talking about today. Uh, Paul is trying to establish the fact that people are justified before God through faith, not through works. He showed that he was teaching the same things that the apostles were teaching. They were preaching the same gospel. Even though they hadn't gotten together, they hadn't taught Paul and then sent him out. Separately, they were teaching the same gospel. Justification is by faith alone. He showed last week, that the Galatian experience, uh, the the believers there, what they had experienced was justification by faith. He pointed back to their own experience. Today, he's going to appeal to a higher authority. He's going to point back to Father Abraham, the patriarch of the faith. If you're going to say that you have to become Jewish to be justified, well, let's look at Abraham. And so... Uh, I think what we'll see is that the testimony of Abraham in the Old Testament is a testimony of justification by faith. Let's start reading in Ephesians 3, 6. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed through you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Pray with me. Uh, Father, we ask that you make your word plain to us as we delve into the treasure that is your holy scripture. Give us discernment and clarity as we seek to have our minds renewed in ways that can only come from you. May we embrace your glorious plan to justify us by faith and order our lives accordingly. We pray these things in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. So, to really understand what Paul's talking about here, we've got to go back to the story of Abraham and understand the story of Abraham. And thanks to some great hermeneutical role models, some of whom are here, I know that if you're going to understand Abraham, you've got to understand Genesis 3. So, Genesis 3 is the fall of man You see, in the New Testament, the word justification 200 times. And we need justification because of what happens in Genesis 3. So what does happen in Genesis 3? God has set up this perfect garden for Adam and Eve. Everything that they could possibly need, they have. Every want, they have. Food comes right up out of the ground without toil or work. If they had had children at that point, they would have been born with no pain or danger. My wife's due in December. She would love to have that set up right now. I'm sure there's there's quite a few who could testify to, to how that would be awesome. Their future was secure, and it was glorious. They had to do one thing. They had to believe God. When God said... Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They had to believe that he knew what he was talking about. But sin is deceptive. So the serpent comes along and he says, Did God really say that you can't eat of any of the trees in the garden? And he said, Well, no, that's not what he said at all. He said that we can't eat of that tree or we'll surely die. And he says, Well, you won't surely die. And then he pours it on even further. He appeals to their vanity. He says, you know why God doesn't want you to eat from that tree? Because he knows that when you do, you'll be like him. God doesn't want you to reach your full potential. He doesn't want you to have your best life now. So eventually they cave. And they they decide that they're going to trust themselves. They're going to trust the serpent more than they trust God. And that's where in Romans 5 we read that sin entered into the world. But this sin didn't just affect Adam and Eve. This sin affects everybody. In Romans 5, 12, uh, it says, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. Today, you felt the effects of Genesis 3. Did anybody wake up sore this morning? Is it just me? I'm getting to an age where... If I sleep hard enough, I wake up sore. It's really depressing. It's sort of the, you know, you you just kind of feel yourself, I guess, after 30 or something. You start just sort of getting worse and worse and worse, just sort of preparing for the grave. I'm not looking forward to it, Robert, I'll be honest with you. Um, Has anybody been sick this week? My kids were sick all week. And it's annoying. But it's worse than annoying. What about... What about chronic illnesses? What about cancer, heart disease, diabetes? All of these things are effects of the fall. Because of the fall, we deal with those things now. But what's scary and what should really grab our attention is that those things are just minor symptoms of our bigger problem. Our bigger problem is that we've sinned and our just and holy God says that because you've sinned, you should die. The wages of sin is death. So the things that we struggle with here are tough, but they're nothing compared to what we will struggle with without Christ and the judgment. And right now you're saying to yourself, y'all let that guy talk to our children he's super depressing and i understand that Uh, and that is it is depressing but if you're going to understand the goodness of the gospel if you're going to understand how the gospel is good news you have to have a realistic understanding of where we are without it for the gospel to be good life-changing news you have to understand that you're dead without it that you're hopeless without it and beyond that you're condemned to suffer for eternity without it we need good news. Immediately we see Adam and Eve trying to hide. They feel shame. And so they, they duck behind a bush. And that's, that's logical, of course. Uh, we, just, we just sinned, made all of humanity fall. But if I hide behind, uh, you know, this, this leaf, I'm going to be good. But let's not be too hard on Adam and Eve. How many of us have neglected to pray because we're ashamed of the sin in our life? I have. How many of us have ducked out a community group because I know that Paul McAllister is going to ask me how I'm doing with that thing I shared with him that I'm struggling with? And I don't want to answer honestly because I'm struggling this week. I have. Actually, literally, with Paul McAllister. I didn't care. (laughs) But what we see is that we can't hide our sin from God. And in reality, we can't hide it from each other long term. It's going to come to light. And just as God will catch up with us in our sin, he caught up with Adam and Eve. And he explained to them that because of your sin, you're going to have great difficulty in your day-to-day life. Everything that you do is now going to be a struggle. But that's not the worst thing. Ultimately, what he said from the beginning was true. If you eat of the tree, you will surely die. That's what Paul is referencing in Romans 5. Now, because of sin, they will surely die. But if you look carefully at Genesis 3, you can see a glimmer of hope. In verse 15, God's talking to the serpent, and and he says to him, he says, uh, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, And you shall bruise his heel. Some scholars call this uh, the proto evangelium. And that sounds like something you've got to go to the doctor and get an antibiotic for. But it's not. What it means is the first gospel. This is a prophecy that a seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake. So uh, we're not a day removed from the definitive sin of all of history. And God's already showing that I will use even this. I will work this together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. The consequences for their sin are severe, they're far-reaching, and they're horrible. But in verse 15, our gracious and loving Father says, I've got this. At this point, we're not exactly sure what he's going to do and how he's going to fix it. But he shows us, even there, that he has a plan to redeem his people. So why can't he just give us a do-over? Why can't he say, okay, you screwed up, but I'm going to act like I wasn't watching. You try again, and we'll, we'll just go on like that. Surely he's got the power to issue a divine do-over, right? I've got the power to give my kids a do-over. If I set a certain bar and they don't meet it, I can say, okay, well, I said if you hit your brother... Again, you would go to time out, but he sort of deserved it, so i 'm going to sort of i 'm going to change the rules a little bit, and you 're not going to be punished. But what if I do that time after time after time? What if everything I say to my daughter I do something different eventually she 's going to know that i don 't do what I say now, uh, thankfully for my children and for all of humanity. Uh, God is a better judge than I am. But what that means for us is that when he makes a rule, it's righteous. When he says that the wages of sin is death, that's the right punishment. Further, when he says if you eat the tree, you'll surely die, it's because it's true. It's not God's power that prevents him from giving Adam and Eve a mulligan. What prevents God from giving Adam and Eve a do over is his character. And, and like I said, he's not a fallen father like I am. This is not some ridiculous divine decree. Like, if you hit your brother one more time, you're grounded until you graduate college, and college will be LSUS. Hit him, I dare you. It's possible that something like that may have come out of my mouth before. But God's. God's justice is true. God's justice is pure. When he says that the wages of sin is death, he's right. In Hebrews, we read that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. That's why those who sin will surely die. We're guilty because of our sin before a holy and righteous God. And the wages of sin is death. This is the world that Abraham was born into. And this is where we're going to start looking at our text today. Look back again at verse 6. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. This is a quote from Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, Abraham has already been promised by God that God's going to make a great nation of Abraham. And we'll talk a little bit more about what that means later. But he's already received that promise, but Abraham is doubting. He said, yeah, I know you said that, but I'm old. My wife's old. She's barren. Uh, My my heir is some doofus cousin in Syria. That's the message version, but that's basically the heart of what he was saying. But what does God say to him as he's doubting? He says, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, so shall your offspring be. So what happens next? God has made a proclamation, just like he made a proclamation in the garden, that if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. Here he says to Abraham, I will give you offspring. I will make a nation of you. And what does Abraham do? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham trusted what God said, and God made him righteous. We use the term justification a lot, especially here in Galatians. And what we mean by the term justification is that those who have sinned owe God a debt because of their sin, because of his righteous judgment, we owe him our lives. So we are justified when we no longer owe that to him. So Abraham here has gone from the place of one who owes God his very life for all eternity to pay for his sin, to the position of one who's righteous. Righteous people don't carry that debt of sin. Abraham is justified. And how is he justified? By believing God. He's justified by faith. He believed God. He trusted. So after our little Old Testament survey, let's get back to our our Galatians context. What, What are we talking about here? there are men who've come in and said, if you want to to be justified before God, you've got to convert. You've got to become a Jew. You've got to get circumcised. You've got to follow the ceremonial laws. Essentially, what Paul is saying to those men and to the Galatians is, is Abraham Jewish enough for you? The patriarch of your faith, is he enough? Is Is he a good example here? Because Abraham was justified by faith. So don't tell me that Titus needs to be circumcised when Abraham was justified two chapters before circumcision entered the scene and 430 years before the law. The people who are trying to get uh, the Galatian converts uh, to be circumcised either don't understand Abraham or they're intentionally misrepresenting him. What Paul is telling us here is that the law has never been a means of justification. He goes on in verse 7. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So the true sons of Abraham aren't those who have altered their bodies It isn't the group of people who follow the law perfectly. The true sons of Abraham aren't even those who are genetically and biologically sons of Abraham. Romans 9, 6 says, not all are Israel that are descended from Israel. The sons of Abraham are those who, like Abraham, have been justified by faith. You don't have to buy into the lie of the bewitcher that you have to add something to that gospel. You're justified by faith. The lineage of Abraham is not a lineage genetically, it's a lineage of faith. What we see is that back in that time, just like in our time, there are those who want to add extra-biblical tests of fellowship. And Paul is writing us so that we, so that we rightly understand justification. Justification. Abraham wasn't justified when he left his homeland. Abraham wasn't justified when he sacrificed Isaac. Those weren't the means of his justification. What we see in the mighty acts of Abraham that all of these people in the Jewish faith in Galatia would have known, those are signs, they're outward signs of the inward reality that Abraham has been justified. We can't get that out of order. It's plain in James that good works necessarily follow conversion. Good works necessarily follow justification. But it's equally plain if you read Paul that those works are not the reason why we're justified. The law can't make you right with God. Good works are a sign of justification. They're not what justifies us. So is there anything wrong with being circumcised or following the ceremonial laws. No, Timothy did it, and it was fine. What is wrong is to say, I'm going to do this so that God will wash away my sin. I'm going to accomplish this good deed so that God will look at me with favor. There aren't enough good deeds. You can't be justified by your works. The only thing that can justify... Fallen men is faith in the Messiah. And what we see in verse 8 is that that has always been God's plan to justify men to himself. Read with me. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying all the nations will be blessed in you. There's several huge things in this verse, and not the least of which is that the scripture is seen not just as words on a page. The scripture is seen as the very word of God. In his letter to Timothy, he says as much. Mere words on a page don't preach. Mere words on a page don't foresee. But what, what Paul is showing us here is that the very word of God is what we find in the scripture. Now, that's not the main point, but it's something that we ignore to our peril. The next thing that is, that is huge is, is the reference here. Paul is referencing back to Genesis 12. And this is the, when, when God began to deal with Abraham. And, and what he said to Abraham was, uh, this is 12, 1 through 3, "'Go from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse.'" And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what's so amazing about that? Most of you are probably pretty familiar with that passage. What's amazing about that is that Paul calls that the gospel. This is the gospel. When Abraham was called by God, that was a gospel call. We know Paul's gospel. Paul's gospel is Christ crucified. So what does that mean? What that means is that Christ took our sin, the debt that we owe to our righteous judge because of our sin, Christ took that upon himself and he paid that debt for us and that in order for us to be justified, we only have to trust in Christ. We have to put our faith in Christ that he has taken care of our sin debt. So this gives us incredible insight into what we read in Genesis 12, the promise of Abraham has always been the gospel. God's main objective from the beginning was to send his son to crush the head of the serpent. He wasn't about establishing a country or building a military power or having, or having political influence. God's plan from the beginning was to redeem his people through the gospel. And why does he need to do that? Because the only way that we will have union with him is for him to conquer evil and to remove the debt that we owe. That's the only way that we can be right before God. But it's more than that. We're not just restored to a place of, of moral neutrality with our Father. We're adopted as sons. We've gone from those who hate the gospel to those who are sons and daughters. I'd say that's a blessing. We finally see what God's plan was back in Genesis 3. We finally see what he was working on. So are we just reading Christ too much into the Old Testament? No. Paul, under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is, is interpreting Genesis for us. It's going to be the best commentary you'll find. On Genesis is Paul and the Holy Spirit. The blessing of Abraham is this gospel of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The blessing comes to us by the grace of God through faith in Christ. And those that have faith in Christ are now the true children of Abraham. So, of course, it's true what we read in verse 9. That those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Those who are of faith embrace what Christ has done on their behalf. We stand justified with no guilt before a righteous judge because Christ has paid the penalty for our sin. We're blessed with Abraham when we, like Abraham, believe God. We're blessed when we put faith in Christ's finished work on the cross. It's a blessing beyond compare. Do you see the enormity of what Paul is saying here? They thought that Abraham was justified by works, but he's justified by faith. Just the way that you and I are. They thought uh, that Abraham's sons were ethnically and ceremonially distinguished, but we see that their true distinguishing characteristic is their faith in the future Messiah. They thought that Abraham was about nation building, and what we see is that the blessing of Abraham has always been to crush the head of the snake and to redeem his people back to himself. There's a promo for a book by Indy Wilson out. Uh, The book's called Death by Living. And uh, he's got a ton of kids. And the kids are in the promo with him and they're crawling all over him and wrestling with him. And he just shouts out the question. He says, what's the Bible all about? And the kids say, slay the dragon, get the girl. What a great summary of what God is doing. After Genesis 3, he will crush the head of the evil one and the sin and the destruction that he's ushered in for the purpose of restoring a people to himself, restoring his bride. The Judaizers didn't get that. They didn't understand. But Paul's making it clear to us. And what is this great tenet of the gospel that Paul is hammering home? This justification that we're in such dire need of is ours through faith. So what? Who cares? How does this affect what we do on a day-to-day basis? The first major application we see, Paul's already mentioned. He wants us to know about Abraham's justification so that we would know who are the true sons of Abraham. Who are those who've truly been justified? As we said earlier... Uh, The Judaizers or the men of James are trying to put up an extra biblical test for fellowship. And when we do that, what we do is unnecessarily divide the body. As Ham preached earlier, our faith brings unity, not division. The second thing is what really hits me in the face, and it it should hit you in the face as well. That's a weird thing to say from the pulpit. Um, Justification by faith excludes boasting. In Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, Paul writes, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, but it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. In Romans 4, Paul says that if Abraham's justified by works, then he's got something to boast about. But if we share in the same manner of justification that Abraham experienced, then we share in the same inability to boast about what we've been given. To put it positively, what that means is that the true believer who understands his justification, who understands his salvation, that person's humble. Humility is the proper posture of a true believer. So what that means is that when we see our brothers and sisters in Christ struggling with sin, we don't condemn, we come alongside. Because we know that but for the grace of God, we would struggle with that exact same sin. It means that when we see the depravity... That is present in our world and open any newspaper turn on the news for 10 seconds and you'll see it We don't lash out in self-righteous anger. We weep for those who like us before we trusted in christ Have not been justified before their father A couple of weeks ago. I took my family down uh, To new orleans to see kyle and the team Uh, And it was great. It was great to be there. It was great to see them Just so happened. It was southern decadence weekend And um, for those of you who don't know what Southern decadence is, uh, that's awesome that you don't know. But what it is, is it's basically a weekend of debauchery for the gay community. And so it is thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who come together in New Orleans basically to celebrate their decadence. So when my daughter, in the back of the minivan, sees something weird going down Carrollton... I've got a choice. Do I say things that puff myself up and make me seem more righteous than I am? Or do I explain to her that the only difference between that man and me is a work that Christ has done? It's no righteousness that's inherent in me. It's only what he's done on my behalf. If you're not trusting in Christ today, this text brings you a message of hope. You don't have to get your stuff together. You don't have to get your ducks in a row before you can come to Christ. And matter of fact, you couldn't. If I gave you a million years to get your life straight, you wouldn't be able to do it. But that's not what you're called to do. What you're called to do is trust in the finished work of Christ. Because we can't do it. We can't do enough. But there's one who can. In Colossians 2, Paul says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Abraham believed that, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That same righteousness is available to you today, this minute, this moment. I was only partially joking about preachers and poems uh, and I actually did find one that I think really encapsulates the meat of what we talked about today. What righteousness was there revealed that sets the guilty free, that justifies ungodly men and calls the filthy clean? A righteousness that proves to all your justice has been met and holy wrath is satisfied through one atoning death. Granger is going to come back up here and he's going to sing. Uh, But after the service, he and I are going to be down here and we would love to talk to you, love to meet you, love to discuss this Jesus with you. Would you pray with me? What an amazing father we have. You made a way for those who are hostile to you to be brought in as sons. And we stand in awe of your kindness and mercy. Father, may our lives be characterized by a gospel humility that seeks to tell everyone we come into contact with about our glorious Father who, at great cost, brought us back to himself. What a mighty God we serve. What a perfect Redeemer pleads our case before our righteous judge on our behalf. In his name we pray.